specifically about how we ought to be examples of Jesus Christ. And this entire text is built off of that principle. And today, what we're going to be talking about is rooted in that principle again. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the living God. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. For all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy, as seen in your word and the songs that we use to strengthen our faith. Thank you that you are our mighty fortress and that we rest safely in you. Thank you that you have left your saints your word. Thank you that you've left your saints godly songs and the means to create songs to strengthen our faith. Lord, today um, we pray for great wisdom and ears to hear and eyes to see. Lord, uh, this text that is before us is um, difficult in many ways. But help us as your people to submit to your word, ultimately in understanding what it's saying and what it means. And help us to do it all to the glory of you. Be with these people because they are your people. Give them the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen. Well, as I mentioned in my prayer, this is a difficult text. It really is. And pastors typically deal with difficult texts in two ways. The first way is that we tend to, like, go on vacation, (laughs) come back, and then not preach that text. Right? Now, since I just went on vacation, that wasn't an option for me. So the second option is to pray in order to teach his word with clarity. And, and hopefully that's what I'm going to do. All right? Now, let's, let's just tackle what's before us. The reason why this text is so difficult is for cultural reasons. Purely cultural reasons. Some people read this text and they said, this text is oppressive to women 
It advances the patriarchal system. It's on the wrong side of history. Um, you know, it's out of step with modern values, and it's misogynist. Now, I've been called a lot of things in my life. I've never been called misogynist. And, and when I hear people say things like that about this text, I need to get a feeling. It's like they haven't read this text, and they haven't tried to understand what this text meant in its original meaning. If you understand the original meaning of this text and what Peter is saying here, this is probably the most progressive text written during that time. Here's a four example. Here's a four example. There's no text in the ancient narrative. And I've checked with scholars and I've tried to look at it myself. There's no text that gives this level of instruction specifically to women. Because they didn't regard women as being able to learn or understand. And here it is, Peter takes time to instruct women because he values them and values their role within the home. Even in Peter's day, that was incredibly progressive. So when you all hear people say that this text is on the wrong side of history, you look at them and say, that doesn't fit. It's not on the wrong side. It's on the right side. Because it's God's word. And by the way, this text is incredibly progressive when you look at what um, Peter is actually saying here. Thank you. Apparently, I wasn't on. Um, so, so reject that notion that this text is oppressive to women, because that's not true. That's not true. And anyone who doubts that, come see me or consult the scholarship regarding this text. Because you will see that this text gave women more rights, more freedom than any other text written at that time. Now, there's a second cultural problem in this text, and that is some people read this text, particularly men, they read this text, and they see this as a license to lord over women, to have women under their subjection, that, okay, this means that my wife has to do what I say. Now, now this text does not say that. That's nonsense as well. This text does not give anyone the license to abuse women or have women underneath their thumb. In fact, the exact opposite. This text is not teaching. Um, this text is not teaching unilateral submission. This text is actually teaching bilateral submission, because if you read the text carefully, both women and men are called to submit. The submission just looks different. We're going to get into that. Okay. So please, Christians, don't don't fall into the trap of either error. Looking at this text, saying, "Oh, this text." You know, just putting women back. That's not true. And don't fall into the error to say that this text means that we should, you know, a husband has the right to tell his wife whatever, uh, what to do, because this text doesn't do it as well. Now, you might ask the question, well, Pastor Dennis, why do people come to this text and see that? Well, here's the reason why. Because people are not operating with the same thinking or thought pattern as Peter. You see, Peter is operating from what we call a redemptive historical grid in which we call creation, fall, and redemption. And here's how creation, fall, and redemption works. Peter knows that God created the world good, meaning, and we talked about this in Sunday school a little bit, but when he created the world as good, very good, the world as God, God created it meant to reflect the glory of God and bring glory to God. But then there was a fall. And the fall obscured the goodness of God in every area of 
society, in every area of life. And now things do not bring glory to God as they are. But then there is redemption, meaning that everything from the fall until now is designed in God's word to redeem that which is lost. So how does that work in marriage? Well, when God created marriage, he created marriage very good, which meant this. Within marriage, men and women understood their unique roles that God gave them. See, there was no need for marriage conferences. There was no need for books on marriage. There was no need for 1 Peter 3 or Ephesians 5, 22 through 23, because everybody understood their role. They were happy in marriage. The wife understood that she was to help meet, and the husband loved his wife and cared for him. That was the picture of marriage. But then the fall happened. And in the fall, you get this curious word in which God told, tells Eve, your desire will be towards your husband, and he will rule over you. What does that mean? That means that ever since the fall, marriage was in problem. That the woman sought to usurp the man and control him, and the man tried to usurp the woman and control her. And what does that mean practically? It means that every time someone gets married, the man wants a Stepford wife, and the woman wants a hand-tech husband. That's what it means. But, again, in this text, what do we have? We have Peter trying to redeem marriage. Peter is trying to tell us how to have a redeemed marriage, how to have a marriage in which uh, a man and a woman are together in love, serving one another and loving one another the way God intended. And let me say this. If you don't have a redeemed view of marriage, you will end up looking at marriage from a very fallen perspective. And when you look at marriage from a fallen perspective, you will be clueless, restless, and hopeless. You'll be clueless because you don't understand what marriage is for. Marriage isn't a status. Marriage isn't necessarily for your own happiness. Oh, no, marriage is meant to reflect Jesus Christ and the church. And in that, we live out the gospel. But we'll also be restless. We'll constantly be fighting one another. We'll constantly be at odds with one another. But lastly, we'd also be hopeless. You know, if you don't have a redeemed view of marriage, if all you have is a fallen view of marriage, you will live in your marriage in a hopeless state. About a month or so ago, um, I was sitting down with a lady. She was probably in her 60s, and me and her had developed a relationship, a good relationship. We talked and fellowship, and, and I got comfortable enough to ask her, hey, you know, I knew you were married. Why didn't you get remarried? She looked at me, and for the next probably seven to ten minutes, recalled one of the most horrible cases of abuse I've ever heard. And I, that is not hyperbole. It was truly awful. And after she told me what her husband did to her, she said, why would I have ever subjected myself to that again? Now, what was happening to her? Well, she had a fallen view of marriage. And in many cases, uh, you know, she, she was deserving of that view because she had a husband who was incredibly abusive towards her. And so she had this fallen view of marriage. Now, we in the church cannot have a fallen view of marriage. We must have a redeemed view of marriage. 
There are people out here, maybe even people in here, that have this fallen view of marriage where marriage is like a drudgery, that marriage, you know, you just endure it. But that's not God's vision for marriage. The Christian marriage should be an evangelistic tool in our world, not a source of of drudgery. And we're going to get into a a little bit of that today. When our view of marriage is just as fallen as the world's view of marriage, how can we ever be married to the glory of God? Look, I've been married to my wife 13 years. It's been 13 glorious years. But the reason why it's been 13 glorious years is because we committed ourselves to loving one another and serving one another the way God intended us to. Now, it's been difficult, mostly because I'm difficult to live with. But it's also been a huge blessing because we understand God's vision and view of marriage. Now, look, there's some of you inside you that are not married, and you're sitting down thinking, well, what does this uh, teaching have to do with me? Everything, because you're called to support marriage, and hopefully one day you might be married. And even if you're not married one day, you need to have a redeemed view of marriage. You need to understand what marriage is to the glory of God. And there's some of you inside here today thinking, well, I'm about to get married. Well, you need this text as well. Because you need to know God's calling in your life. And there's some of you that are married, been married way longer than me. But we all need to be reminded of what God has called us in the gospel to live uh, with each other as husband and wife. Now, what is the redeemed view of marriage? I I think this text gets us there. Now, everyone, you know, if you read through this, the context is obviously Peter is talking about a believing spouse with an unbelieving spouse. But there's many things inside this text that we can use for our marriage, even if you're married, even if you're married as two believers. And so this text is important. So what I want to do is I want to look at two things in this text. First of all, I want to look at the wife's submission to her own husband and then the husband's submission to his own wife. Okay? So first of all, the wife's submission to her her own husband. Look at verse number one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, the big hang-up here is the word submission. Because in our day, the word submission has all sorts of awful connotations. Right? And you know them. That means that, you know, the wife has to do whatever the husband says. No questions asked. And that means you don't have a brain of your own. And you just do what you're told. That's the bad connotation that we have around the word submission. But the problem with that is that's not the biblical view of submission. The the biblical view of submission is far more wonderful and blessed than that. Now, I've studied this uh, passage and I've studied this word And I've realized that one of the best definitions or one of the best statements that get at the heart of what submission means in this text was written recently in a book by uh, Kathy and Tim Keller called The Meaning of Marriage. By the way, if you've not read it yet, I, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful book. But in the book, Kathy Keller talks about um, submission. And this is what she said. She said that she read Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And when she saw that submission is a gospel reality, meaning this, 
that the son was responsive to the father's wishes in every way, shape, and, and, um, and fashion. She said this, I discovered here that my submission in marriage was a gift I offered, not a duty coerced out of me. I'll say that one more time, that she discovered that her submission in marriage was a gift she offered, not a duty coerced out of me. Now, I need to unpack that a little bit because there are a couple of things inside there that I want you to see. First of all, she said that submission, submission means to be responsive to the needs of your spouse. That's what submission means in this passage, that you as a woman need to be responsive to the needs of your, of, of your husband. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean you do everything your husband says, because sometimes your husband might ask you to do unbiblical things, unrighteous things. So that's not a part of that. Sometimes your husband might ask you to do things that you're incapable of. That's not what is being mentioned here at all. But what it means is that as a woman, Paul, I mean, Peter is calling you, and Paul in Ephesians 5 is calling you to be responsive to the needs of your husband. Now, why is that important? Well, think about it this way. In Peter's day, when Peter is writing, the woman was obligated when she got married, to take on the religion of her husband. No questions asked. That's what you did. But here it is. These women are coming to Christ without their husbands. So the temptation here is for them not to listen to their husband anymore. Oh, he's an unbeliever. I don't have to listen to him. I don't have to be responsive to his needs. I don't have to do what he tells me to do. Now I can listen to my Christian leaders who are men because they're telling me how to live my life and they're telling me the right thing to do. And Peter is saying, well, hold on. You still need to submit to your own husbands even though he might be an unbeliever. And Peter says the reason why that's important is because the gospel is at stake. Notice what he goes on to say. Um, after he says that, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. What does won by a word mean? It means they might come to faith as a result of their wives being submissive to them. That's at the heart of this text. Peter says, no, don't, don't say, you know, don't talk poorly about your husbands. Don't badmouth your husbands. Don't say that your husband no longer can instruct you or tell you anything because you're a Christian and they're not. No, the exact opposite. He said that you need to be responsive to your husband's needs. And the same thing is true now. Peter is saying a part of a wife submitting to her husband is being responsive to her husband's needs. That's critical. That's critical because the gospel is at stake. Because that's a part of our evangelism. Again, I want to pause here today. When the world looks at the church, and when the world looks at our marriages, do they see Christ and the church? Do they see a picture of what the gospel is? In the same way, when we take communion, what are we looking at? We're looking at a picture of the gospel. It should be the same way with our marriages. People should look at our marriage and be able to interpret the gospel. They should be able to see a wife being responsive to the needs of her husband. And they should be able to see a husband in lovingly and caring for his wife. That's at the heart of what Peter is saying. Now, 
Something else is being said uh, here by the text and uh, Kathy Keller, and it's this. It's that your submission, wives, should be a gift that you give to your husband. In other words, you being resp responsive to your husband's needs is a gift that you give him. It's a voluntary act, not done by coercion. One of the best places in uh, God's word where you see this is between Ruth and Naomi. When Naomi is leaving and she tells all of them to go back, Ruth comes and says, no, 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 I'm not going anywhere. Wherever you go, I will go. I'll make your God my God. Now, why is she saying that? She is voluntarily submitting herself to Naomi, which in the text is a huge shock because you, like, for one woman to do that to another woman was completely unheard of. But here it is, she's willingly doing that. And so the same should be done with a woman to her husband. But it's predicated on respect. Because a woman respects God, because a woman understands her role and the role that God has given her, and then she sees her husband, she gives respect to her husband by submitting to him. Now, let me say this, women, young ladies, hear me. That means you need to marry someone who's respectable. And that also means you need to marry someone you respect. Because hear me, if you do not marry someone you respect, you're going to end up being that person's babysitter or mom. And you do not want that. Trust me when I tell you, you do not want that. Marry someone you can respect. Marry someone that is respectable. And you might be in a marriage today, and if you're struggling with respecting your husband, you need to get that sorted out right away. You need to get counseling. You need to talk through that with someone because you do not want to be in a marriage where you cannot respect your husband. Look, young ladies, I know he might be McDreamy, right? And he might say all the right things and do all the right things. But if you cannot respect this individual, do not marry him. Because when you give yourself to someone in obedience to God's word, God is calling you to submit that person and a huge part of that is that you have to respect that person and cultivate a heart of respect toward that person now Peter goes on after he explains briefly what submission is Peter goes on and Peter says this not only is it important to understand how you submit but it's just as important as the act of submission so he says, you ought to submit. How do you ought to submit? By being responsive to your husband's needs, by caring for your husband, by listening to him and, and not bad-mouthing him, not nagging him, but caring for his needs. That's how you submit to your husband. But he says, how you submit to your husband is also important too. Notice in verse number two, when, you, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, right? In other words, your character. You need to do it with a character that's respectful and of a pure conduct. And then in verse number three, he says, do not let, he says something curious. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of the gold jewelry, or the, whole, or the clothes you wear. Now, what is he talking about here? Okay, let me explain this. This is not evangelism through frumpiness. Okay. He's not saying be as unattractive as possible with your husband because your character should shine through. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. 
Peter lived in a time where women used their looks and their bodies to get what they wanted to control men. You see this actually, uh, an excellent example of this, you see this um, in Mark chapter 6 with Herodias' daughter. Now some of you remember that scene, right? That scene is scandalous. Because Herodias' daughter comes and she braids her hair, she puts on uh, perfume, she laces up, and she walks out there and she shook what her mama gave her, right? That's what she did. That's what the text says. That's what the Bible says. No, I'm serious. Like, she went out there, and the Bible says she danced for Herod. And she danced in such a seductive way, in such, in such an, an incredible way. And, and I don't want to know what kind of dance it was. But it was such a provocative dance that when she was done, he said, I will give you half of my kingdom. Half of my kingdom. Now, what the text doesn't tell you is that everybody else wanted to give her all, all of their kingdom. And so she runs back and she tells her mother, she says, Mom, what, what, what should I ask for? And her mom says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Really sad. Now, let me say this. Any society where a woman has to dress provocatively and shake her booty to get what she wants is a society where a woman has no power. You know what's interesting to me? One of the, I, I call this an Egalian sleight of hand. One of the things that happened in, during the sexual revolutions back in the 1960s is men wanted to sleep with women and bear none of the consequences for that. None of the emotional consequences, none of the physical consequences, none of the spiritual consequences for that. Right? They just wanted to sleep with women. But there were Christian values, right? And Christian values say, you know what? You should respect a woman and listen to the woman solely based on its character. So they had a problem. So here's what they say. They said, what if we could convince women that it's actually empowering for them to dress provocatively and allow us to sleep with them? Oh, wow. And you know, for two generations now, it's worked perfectly. Now we've bought the lie that what's empowering for women is that they can dress however they want and allow men to sleep with them without bearing any of the consequences for them. But what is Peter saying inside you? See, what Peter is saying is so progressive. What Peter is saying is so empowering to women because Peter is saying that you should be able, on the strength of your character, on the strength of your character, you should be listened to, and loved and cared for as a woman. That's what Peter is saying here. He's telling her, you don't have to dress up. You don't have to be beautiful. The strength of your character alone should be enough for your husband or any man to listen to you. That's incredibly freeing for women. Why? Because not everybody has the capacity to dress up and look beautiful. But you know what? Every single woman inside here has the capacity to be a woman of character. And on that alone, a man should listen to you and show you, uh, show you respect. But you don't hear things like that anymore, right? Why? Because our world is so profoundly anti-Christian in everything it says and does. Look, Christian women, when God created you, 
He created you with value and meaning. We looked at this about two weeks ago in Sunday school. You were created in his image. You reflect the image of God. And based on the fact that you've reflected the image of God, you've been imbued with the character of God. And on that character alone, a man should love you, respect you, and care for you deeply and profoundly. You don't have to dress a particular way and you don't have to take your clothes off in order for a man to love you and respect you. Shouldn't happen. You shouldn't have to. That's why when people tell me that this text is disempowering the women, I tell them, you have no clue what you're talking about. If anything, this text gives women the power that our society takes away from them. Because this text demands that a man, a husband, Treat his wife with respect because she is a respectable woman. Okay. Now, how do we notice the case? Pastor, it sounds like you're doing some uh, exegetical gymnastics. No, I'm not. Because notice how he goes on and he gives an example of Sarah. Um, so, so look at verse number four. Um, he says, but let your, hid, your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in the God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Now he's saying used to adorn themselves how? By their character. And who does he give an, as, as an example? Uh, by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now, here's why the Sarah illustration is genius. Now, point number one. Sarah was a beautiful woman. Read through scripture. She's known for her beauty. In fact, her husband says, you are so beautiful, and I am so not attractive, that when we go to, um, where do they go to? Uh, uh, Egypt. When, they, when, I, when I go to Egypt, you tell them I am your brother because they will kill me. There's no way they would believe I'm your husband. Thank God for arranged marriages, right? Because if we lived in our day, there was no way Abraham would have gotten Sarah. That's just like that wasn't going to happen. She was that beautiful. But here the scripture is telling us that what was more beautiful about Sarah was her godly character. You know, when I was growing up, um, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying, when I was growing up, they used to tell young ladies, if you're not pretty, be nice. Now, I don't, I, I don't believe that. I'm just telling you what they used to say, right? If you're not pretty, be nice. Why? Because you couldn't get a man otherwise. That's what they said. I, I didn't say that. Now, this text blows that out of the water, because even if you are pretty, you ought to be a woman of character, and that is supposed to outshine any and everything else. That's the point that he's making. But he's also making another point too. He's saying that Sarah was a woman of character so much so that she, notice in verse number six, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, was Abraham a respectable man? Not always. Not always. I mean, he did some really bad things. But yet she called him Lord. In other words, she showed him respect. Okay, I got a story to tell you. I, um, <laughs> I, I went by a friend's house for Christmas. This is like my sophomore year in college. And I was staying for him for Christmas. And we were there. And his mom cooked a, just a wonderful meal. And she dished up everybody's food. And she like passed it out. 
And then she gave it to her husband, and she said, is there anything else I could do for you, my friend? And I was, I was sitting there like, what? what? What did she just say? And then she did it again. And I was like, so, so like after the dinner, I like snuck over to her, and I said, hey, um, is everything okay? Like, do you need me to call the authorities or something? Like, this sounds like a very abusive situation. And she just started laughing. She just started laughing. And her and her husband sat me down and told me that they, you know, they were having such massive problems in their marriage. And, and a therapist suggested that she, she, like, they do that. So he referred to her as his queen, and she referred to him as my lord. Now, man, I'm not saying you ask your wife to do that. Like, don't get me in trouble, okay? I'm not advocating that. But here's what I am saying, and here's something that's always stuck with me. How do, we, how do we practically show, wives, how do you practically show your husband respect? And husbands, how do you practically show that you love your wife? Now, there are some inherent things, like oh, a wife would take on her husband's last name in our day as a sign of respect, and, and husbands like tend to buy their wives really fancy and nice gifts to show their love. But however you do it, we need to figure out a way to do that. Okay? Now, I'm not saying call each other Lord and wear head coverings. But I am saying, however that works out practically, it needs to happen. Now, that was, that was an important aside for this reason. Sarah showed Abraham respect, even though he might not have always acted respectable. And here's the point of the text. The word for Lord means Adonai, and it was a title you would give to a king. So in other words, she was showing her husband just as much respect as she would give to a king. And here's what that means in our days. Wives, you need, your husband ought to be the man that you respect the most in the world. And you need to figure out a way to get there. You should not show anyone more respect than you do your husband. Because that's your calling. That's why she called him Lord. She called him Adonai. That's the respect that you would give to um, a king. Now, let's end in verse number seven. Likewise, husbands. Now, pause here. Some of you are like, well, Pastor Dennis, he spent six verses talking to women and just one verse talking to men. This seems out of balance. Well, it might be out of balance for good reason. It could be that men are more difficult to live with. And so, therefore, the woman needs more instruction on how to live with us. Like, stop, stop, like, thinking the worst. But, but can I tell you this? If you actually study Ephesians 5, who does Paul spend more time talking to? Men. So there's nothing nefarious going on here. That's just how the text shakes, um, shook out. And there are, there are good historical reasons for that. And if you want to know, I'll be happy to, to talk you through that. But notice verse number seven. So again, this is the mutual submission. So he talks about how wives should be submissive to their husband by being responsive to their needs, by caring for them. But notice the duality here, because he says, likewise husbands. So husbands have to be submissive to their wives. And how should husbands be submissive to their wives? Live with your wife in an understanding way. So first and foremost, you should live in, un in such a way where you're learning your wife. You know what pleases her. You know what makes her happy. You know the things that she doesn't like to do. You know the things that she does, does like to do. And you do your level best to care for her in that way. 
And if you're not doing that, you need to start doing that because that's the calling of God for you. <laughs> Live with your wife in an understanding way. You should know your wife. And you should know her well. You don't say things you know that will upset her. You don't go down pathways that you know would aggravate her. You care for her well by knowing her. And that involves talking to her. That involves you uh, making efforts to get to know her and, her and ask her about her feelings. Right? And then the second thing, we ought to show her uh, honor and here's the bit that kind of rankle people, to the woman as the weaker vessel. And so, I'm not a weaker vessel. Okay, un understand, this is just ancient Nary speak. If Peter lived in our day, he would have said something different. He would say, you know, um, I don't want to get myself in trouble. It's just, he, it just says what he says. He says what he says as the weaker vessel. Now, what that means is this, that... that in Peter's day, of course, women were looked at as less physically strong. And so what Peter is saying in essence here is this. Don't, as a man, don't use your strength, don't use brute force to get a woman to submit to you. You should do it just by understanding who she is and then, and then living in such a way as to please her. That's what he's saying here. She's not weaker morally. She's not weaker intellectually. She's not weaker in terms of her moral standing. She has the same Holy Spirit that you do. But in this text, he's saying that as a man, you shouldn't dom try to dominate and overtake your, your wife. You should, you should treat her in such a way that she's an heir of the grace um, of life. And notice what he says at the end, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now pause for a moment. I don't know if you've all ever thought about this, but Peter was married. And Peter wasn't the easiest person to disciple. I can't imagine that he was the easiest person to be married to. And yet, and yet the apostle is writing in such a way to put himself underneath this same admonition. Peter is saying that I have to live with my wife in such a way, care for her in such a way, that my prayer as an apostle be not hindered. How much more ours? Men, hear me today. If you don't care for your wife, if you don't learn, learn her well and serve her well, the Bible says that God will not listen to you. Why? Because God is a protector of the weak. If you mistreat your wife, if you don't learn to ask for forgiveness, if you don't treat her like the, the queen that, that she is to God, your prayers will be hindered. Man, I, look, I don't want my prayers to be hindered, and you don't either. So men, let's serve our wives well. Now, look, what's the big takeaway take here? I've said a lot, and I need to wrap up. But what's the big takeaway? I want to give five practical big takeaways here. Okay? And here they are. They'll be real quick. Big takeaway number one is be content. You know, it, it baffles me that in our day, we're such a discontented people, and we see it in marriage. We're always looking, you know, there's an assumption that we can have better than what we have. That's a dangerous assumption. You know, I had a friend one day, he was like, Dennis, I don't know if I should date this young lady. Like, you know, it's kind of weird. Like, she's not really what I want. And I pulled him aside, and I was like, listen, she's the best thing that will ever happen to you. It doesn't get any better than this. And you are fooling yourself if you think it does. 
And you know, sometimes we think that it could be better when we all know that it really can't. The person that God gave you is the person that God wants you to be with. Learn to be content with that person. Not settling. I hate that word, settling. Contentment. Where you love someone and you cherish them and you care for them. All right, point number two. Be evangelistic in your marriage. Remember, Christian marriage is supposed to be an evangelistic tool to the world around you. Your neighbors, your ch- and this is a big one, your children. One of the best advice I ever got when I first got married was um, the, uh, one of the people that, that mentored me said, Dennis, the biggest evangelistic tool to your children is when they see you love and care for your wife. Biggest evangelistic tool. Because they're going to know by your conduct towards your wife, what godliness is. Man, that's the best piece of marriage advice I ever got. Number three, be prayerful. And let me talk to the children here for a moment. Children, pray for your parents' marriage. Do you realize if your parents' marriage is not doing well, that's going to impact every aspect of your home? Children, pray for your parents' marriage. Be faithful in prayer for your, for your parents' marriage. And those of you that are not married or, or, you know, college students, be in prayer for the marriages, your parents' marriage, but the marriages in your church. We should all be praying for one another because prayer is what ultimately is going to sustain us. Um, Number four is, I'll, I'll end here. I have five, but I'll end with this one. Be trusting. Believe the best about your spouse. Don't always think your, your spouse has ulterior motives when they say and do things. Look, this one was transformative in my marriage. When I, when, when I stopped looking at my wife like, oh, she said this, but she really meant this. And maybe she meant this when she did this. Look, that, that sows discord in your marriage. Be trusting. If, you're how, if your spouse is telling you something, if your spouse brings something to you that's a concern, trust that it is a concern and take it seriously, and pray together and repent. Okay? It, it'll, trust me, it will change your marriage. All right, I've said enough. Let's pray. Father, um, we need this teaching today uh, for multiple reasons, but probably the most profound uh, reason is because marriage is in trouble in our society today. It really is. People just have a fallen view of marriage, but we are called as your people to have a redeemed view of marriage and texts like this and Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 and others really help us to see your vision for marriage and to live in light of it. Lord, in a world where we are told that our values are out of step with modern day, in a world where our values are looked at um, as being backwards, Lord, help us not to believe that lie. Help us to see that your redemptive plan for every area of our life pushes us forward. Lord, we talked about the Reformation. It's going to take faith. It's going to take an understanding of your word. It's going to take grace. It's going to take um, a sincere desire to bring glory to you to make all of this happen. And so we give ourselves to you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.